You're listening to Season 9 of Mobile Suit Breakdown, a weekly podcast covering the entirety of sci-fi mega-franchise Mobile Suit Gundam, researching its influences, examining its themes, and discussing how each piece of the Gundam canon fits within the changing context in Japan and the world from 1979 to today. This is episode 9.7, Demons, Harbingers, Protectors, and we are your hosts. I'm Tom, longtime Gundam fan, and I don't know what I'm researching next week, but I can promise you that it won't be related to Anna Velgato. I'm sick of that dude and his smug aura. And I'm Nina, wishing that once, just once, a research piece would be simpler than anticipated instead of the other way around. Mobile Suit Breakdown is made possible by 710 paying subscribers. Thank you all for keeping us genki. And welcome back to several old patrons who've returned this week. A special thank you to Thomas for the book from our wishlist and to Justin B for supporting us on Ko-fi. Listeners, this year's annual pin promo is going to be extra special. In honor of MSB's fifth podversary, the pins will be accompanied by some fun extras that are designed, ordered, and currently in production. I can't wait for them to arrive so that we can post pictures. Pins have also been ordered, so it is just a matter of production time until we let you know the full details of this year's pin promotion. In the meantime, you can help keep us independent and ad-free. Keep the Gundam takes flowing. For links and information on all of the different ways to support this podcast, visit gundampodcast.com slash support. And now, Nina's research on Tengu, the long-nosed, mountain-dwelling crow demons of Japanese legend. Yokai is a blanket term for the demons, shapeshifters, and weird phenomena of Japanese folklore, myth, and legend. Among these, one of the most famous types is the Tengu. In his Handbook of Japanese Mythology, Michael Ashkenazi describes them as forest goblins. Another source terms them minor deities. In some of the earliest written references to them, the Tengu are formless spirits dwelling in the mountains and wild places, but over time, a physical description emerges. In the tale of the Heike, Tengu are described as, quote, men but not men, bird but not bird, dog but not dog. They possess the head of a canine, a pair of wings, and are capable of both flight and walking. They are more monstrous bird than anything else, and even when they transform into a human, they retain many bird characteristics, such as their wings. A few sources go even further and specify the type of bird, a kite, a kind of bird of prey related to eagles, hawks, and buzzards. Over time, the tengu become more complex, with karasu tengu, or crow tengu, and konoha, or kopa tengu, foliage tengu, both referring to a smaller, more bestial, more bird-like tengu, while hanataka tengu, or tall-nosed tengu, have a face and body that are more recognizably humanish, the bird's beak anthropomorphizing into an extremely long nose. Their faces are bright red, and they are described and depicted as having glittering, even golden eyes. Masks of this type of tengu are very common. These more human tengu frequently have long white hair and white beards. 
Their description bears some resemblance to that of the enormously tall, bushy-bearded, long-nosed, and ruddy-faced Shinto deity, Sarutahiko Okami. The Nihon Shoki describes his nose as seven hand spans in length. He is the leader of the earthly kami, a patron of the martial arts and symbol of purification, strength, and guidance. In Issei, he was also worshipped as a sun god before Amaterasu. Descriptions of Tengu may also have drawn from a more ancient Shinto bird demon, and several sources posit that Tengu are a localized version of the Garuda from Indian Buddhism and Hinduism. One source gives the earliest written record of a Tengu sighting as 637 CE, when a comet appeared that moved across the sky from east to west with a, quote, sound like thunder. In Chinese mythology, such comets are canine monsters that move across the heavens with a noise like thunder and bring war wherever they fall. Their name means heavenly dog, and it is the likely origin for the Tengu name in Japanese, which uses the same characters. A different source mentions the same occurrence, but points out that the record of it in the Nihon Shoki was not written until 720 CE. Yet another ancient historical text, the Kujiki, gives the Tengu godly origins. In it, the female deity Amanozako, a monstrous raging creature born from the god Susano's spat-out ferocity, is described as having many of the same characteristics as Tengu, and her name is written with the characters for Tengu and for God. Though it's worth mentioning that this way of writing Amanozako's name is not consistent across copies of the Kojiki, and the dates and authenticity of the relevant copy are disputed. Likely as not, all of these origins had some influence. Over time, the specifics of how Tengu are characterized and depicted have changed a lot, and what I thought would be a simple explanation of the characteristics and habits of a mythical creature instead has turned out to be a fascinating look at religion and politics in Japanese society through the centuries. In personality, Tengu have ranged from wicked and malicious enemies of Buddhism to amoral tricksters and mischief-makers, to chaos agents and harbingers of war, to stern but benevolent sources of esoteric wisdom who reward good and punish evil. Their long noses are a symbol of their own pride, and they are quick to anger and to punish disrespect. Yet they also take immense pleasure in taking arrogant humans down a peg, defeating swordsmen who take advantage of others, or confounding Zen Buddhist priests with riddles of their own. In some later tales, Tengu are drawn to excessive pride. It actually attracts them to a person. As enemies of Buddhism, they tempt humans away from the path of good, light temples on fire, terrorize priests. As sources of wisdom, they reward worthy humans who show sufficient humility with things like stamina, swordsmanship, magical amulets or spells, and knowledge of the mountains. That is one constant. Tengu are, and seem to have always been, residents and guardians of the mountains and the deep woods, the wild places. They like to confuse and play tricks on humans who enter their territory, and are often given credit for the kinds of strange occurrences that make people uneasy in the woods. Loud sounds and echoes, sudden gusts of wind, unexplained rock falls, swaying or rustling branches when there's no breeze, and so on the sounds of music or drumming in places where there are no people. There's even one phenomenon called tengu warai, or tengu laughter, which is the sound of laughter with no identifiable origin and, quote, 
If one tries laughing back, it would laugh even louder than before. In Japan, mountains have both holy and spooky connotations, associated with great good powers, but also with ghosts, spirits, and malevolent forces. Therefore, Tengu inhabit a realm both earthly and spiritual. They live in close proximity to gods, spirits, and humans, and to the divine power of the mountain. As in Shinto, many mountains are kami in and of themselves. Mossy or sandy thickets are considered Tengu nesting grounds, and the Tengu are closely associated with pines and cryptomerias, a conifer commonly referred to as Japanese cedar or Japanese redwood, which is frequently planted on shrine and temple grounds. Tengu live in large groups, or should I say flocks, and each group has a single leader. In terms of powers and abilities, Tengu are capable of possessing humans and do so to make them act strangely or worry their neighbors. They can fly, shapeshift, and turn invisible. They are knowledgeable about herbs and medicines and can cast spells and tell the future. Sometimes Tengu are depicted with a magical feather fan, which can, depending on the tone of the story, grow or shrink a person's nose, or summon and control winds. There are numerous stories in both the oral and literary tradition in which priests and children are kidnapped by Tengu. They are eventually returned home, but are always different somehow. In some stories, the kidnapped person is returned so mentally or physically ill that they cannot recount what happened to them. In others, they are fine, but have only vague or partial memories of what happened. In some, the kidnapped becomes a kind of disciple and is given all kinds of secret knowledge. There are more nefarious stories of disappearances and kidnappings, including women kidnapped by towering, hair-covered mountain men and forced to live with them as their wives. But these seem to be distinct creatures. Tengu enjoy messing with people, but there was no mention in the sources I read of any kind of sexual menace from Tengu, which I think needs mentioning since that was one of Monsha's main characteristics. The Tengu are also, and this is another point that will be important later, legendarily skilled martial artists. They are renowned for their skill with the sword and the war fan, their grasp of tactics, and their expert sword making. In a much more contemporary connection than I expected to find, the founder of Aikido, Ueshiba Morihei, is supposed to have been taught the secrets of Aikido by a Tengu. There is a close association between Tengu and the Shugendo religion, a syncretic, esoteric Buddhist sect. Syncretic being a fancy but useful word to describe when different philosophical, religious, or cultural principles and practices mix and combine with each other. Out of the coexistence of Shinto and Buddhism, a philosophical religious system referred to as Ryobu Shinto emerged, with the core idea being that Shinto kami and Buddhist deities were the same entities. One specific religious movement within Ryobu Shinto is Shugendo. Confusingly, a couple of sources say that Shugendo emerged in the early part of Japan's Middle Ages, the 12th or 13th centuries, while another says it was in the Nara period, the 8th century. This earlier origin has Shugendo coming out of Buddhist temples on and around Mount Koya, which sent their priests to preach Buddhism all over Japan. But in any event, Shugendo has a very distinct image in the popular imagination of Japan, in the present day and historically. And this image is a more or less accurate reflection of what Shugendo practitioners were like for hundreds of years. 
They engaged in ascetic practices drawn from both Shinto and Buddhism. Things like long periods of fasting and celibacy, bathing under waterfalls. They worshipped mountains and made frequent pilgrimages to mountaintops. And many Shugensha, that is, Shugendo practitioners, were wandering priests. Their position outside of normal society, traveling and spending most of their time in the wilderness, means that they are often lumped together with gyoja, ascetics, yamabushi, mountain monks, and bikuni, wandering nuns. From the perspective of people living in remote towns and villages, Shugensha would appear out of the wilderness, perform some spells for the locals, and disappear again, in a manner similar to marebito, visiting deities common in Japanese mythology. Like other wanderer figures, such as players and puppeteers, they represented some isolated communities' only source of news from the outside world, as well as a source of new ideas, new stories, and religious education. In the communities they visited, Shugensha organized prayer meetings, exorcisms, and pilgrimages, sold charms and medicines, told fortunes, and engaged in sex work. Though Shugensha were men, there were also wandering nuns who were mendicants, medicine women, diviners, and there were female goblins, similar to Tengu, based on them. Shugendo was banned or suppressed at various points off and on, but has endured to the present day. Tengu, like Shugensha and Yamabushi, were seen as fierce and wild, obeying their own leaders but no one else, and living largely outside of society. Once the association between Tengu and these wild monks was established, artistic depictions of Tengu frequently showed them in the Yamabushi's distinctive clothing, the black box-shaped tokin hat, yuigesa harness or sash adorned with pom-poms, and a metal staff adorned with rings called the shakujo. Sometimes they wear what are called Tengu geta, tall wooden sandals with a single tooth on the bottom, meant for use in mountain terrain. In the Heian period story collection, the Konjaku Monogatari Shu, Tengu are described as, quote, troublesome opponents of Buddhism who mislead the pious with false images of the Buddha, carry off monks and drop them in remote places, possess women in an attempt to seduce holy men, rob temples, and endow those who worship them with unholy power. They often disguise themselves as priests or nuns, but their true form seems to be that of a kite. From this period onward, Tengu were considered to rise from the ghosts of the sinfully arrogant, vain, or proud. And even today, Tengu Ninaru, or to become a Tengu, is an idiom for a conceited person. Like in English, we might say someone who's got a swollen head. These depictions and the fear of the priest in disguise leading good people astray speaks to fear over the Shugensha's lack of orthodoxy, their deviations from the Buddhism practiced in the capital. This hard line softens with time. In the Genpei Josuiki, an extended version of the Heike Monogatari, also known as the Genpei Seisuiki, written in the Kamakura period, a god explains to Emperor Go Shirakawa that some people's spirits become Tengu because, as Buddhists, they do not go to hell, but as people with bad principles, they also cannot go to heaven. This god goes on to describe the physical appearance of different types of Tengu. The ghosts of priests, nuns, ordinary men and ordinary women, all of whom in life possessed excessive pride, and the ghosts of great men become the larger, more human, more powerful Dai Tengu, or Great Tengu, 
while the ghosts of ignorant people become the smaller, more bestial Kotengu, or lesser Tengu. In the Hogen Monogatari, a war chronicle of the Hogen Rebellion, the Emperor Sutoku is forced to abdicate by his father. Later, rebels raise him up against Emperor Go Shirakawa. When they are defeated, Sutoku is exiled. He dies in torment, swearing that he will haunt Japan as a demon. He becomes a particularly fearsome Tengu. In a later no play, Matsuyama Tengu, or The Goblins of Matsuyama, Sutoku's friend, the poet and monk Saigyo, makes a pilgrimage to the place of exile after Sutoku's death, and there encounters the vengeance-obsessed Tengu Sutoku has become. The Shasekishu, a book of Buddhist parables from that same period, distinguishes between good and bad Tengu. The bad are, as Tengu were characterized in times past, but the good are protectors of Buddhism. The flaw of pride or ambition may have caused them to fall onto the demon road, but they remain the same, quote, good dharma-abiding persons they were in life. Still, the harm and danger bad Tengu posed was very clear. Tengu formed from the ghosts of angry, vain, or heretical priests would possess people and speak through them, especially women and girls. In the Kojidan, a collection of Buddhist stories, Tengu even target the imperial family, with one possessing an empress. In the Okagami, a historical tale from the 12th century, Emperor Sanjo was made blind by a Tengu, the ghost of a priest who resented the throne. There were, at various times in Japanese history, tensions and conflict between the government and the various Buddhist organizations, which held significant wealth, power, and influence in their own right. In another example of how Tengu were used to talk about Buddhism in Japanese society, a late 13th century picture scroll called Tenguzoshi Emaki parodies famous high-ranking Buddhist priests by depicting them as Tengu. There are a number of no plays that feature Tengu as major influences or characters. From the 14th century on, Tengu stories are somewhat less folksy, less focused on Buddhist priests and temples, and with stronger association with war, largely thanks to one extremely famous Tengu tale that the legendary warrior Miyamoto no Yoshitsune was taught by a Tengu. His father had been assassinated by the rival Taira clan, the young boy allowed to live as long as he went into exile near Mount Kurama and became a monk. There, he encountered and befriended one of the great Dai Tengu, Sojobo, from whom he learned swordsmanship, tactics, even magic. In the war epic Heiji Monogatari, this Tengu mentorship is given as the reason why Yoshitsune, quote, could run and jump beyond the limits of human power. In the earliest of these stories, this is an example of Tengu as chaos agents, encouraging war and rebellion to upset peace and stability. But as Yoshitsune and his story gained renown, his Tengu teacher Sotobo became a sympathetic, admirable figure, who assists with the honorable goal of vengeance for Yoshitsune's father. There are multiple no plays about Yoshitsune's story. Kurama Tengu tells the story of Yoshitsune and Sojobo's first meeting. Eboshiori tells of Yoshitsune's departure from the valley and first real use of what he's learned, fighting off bandits and defeating their leader in single combat. And Benkei on the Bridge tells the story of Yoshitsune's meeting with the ferocious warrior and former monk who would become his most trusted lieutenant. All of these feature Tengu in the main story or in the flashbacks common to no theater. 
I particularly wanted to share this passage from the afterword of a graphic novel called The Demon's Sermon on the Martial Arts, which summarizes that first meeting between Benke and Yoshitsune. The year was 1173. The time was about midnight. Musashibo Benke, a rogue priest of the Shugendo sect, stood in the middle of the Gojo-bashi, a wooden bridge that crossed the Kamo River in the middle of Kyoto. A burly man standing six and a half feet tall, Benke held a halberd, a weapon consisting of a broad curved blade attached to a long, heavy staff. The combination of his size, strength, and skill with the weapon made him a formidable figure. Benke had made a vow to defeat a thousand armed men and take their swords, and as of this night, he had collected 999. Thus, he was anxious to fulfill his vow within the hour. Hearing the melody of a flute and approaching footsteps, he moved to the middle of the bridge and took a stand, but was disappointed to see the slight figure of a boy of only 14 or 15 coming his way. Benke was ready to let him pass when he noticed that the lad was wearing a sword, and while there would be no sport in this, it might be the last opportunity of the night. Moving abruptly forward, Benke demanded the young warrior's sword, but the teenager, Yoshitsune, ignored his command and walked on by, never missing a note on the flute he was playing. When he got over his shock at this impudence, Benke ran after the boy, stood before him again, and repeated his demand for the sword. As Yoshitsune continued to walk on, Benke became enraged and swung his halberd low at the youngster's feet. Nothing there. The astonished Benke looked up and saw that Yoshitsune had leapt onto the handrail of the bridge and was still moving away from him. Benke swung once more, now at Yoshitsune's torso, but missed again. This time, Benke felt the insulting smack of Yoshitsune's bamboo flute across the back of his neck. Livid, Benke lashed out vainly over and over, landing no blows but feeling thumps and whacks about his face, neck, and midsection. Perhaps because it was dark, or perhaps because he was angry, Benkei didn't see that Yoshitsune was not alone. Surrounding the young man were six or seven strange creatures, some half-human, half-bird, some eerie-looking men with long noses, armed with Buddhist implements, ringed staffs, heavy bells, ritual ropes, and double vajras. Were these demons beating Benkei? Or was Yoshitsune himself trouncing Benke, and was the vision of the creatures just a manifestation of the boy's skill? Benke, panting and begging for mercy, had no way of knowing that Yoshitsune had spent his youth in exile in a temple on Mount Kurama, by night learning the secrets of martial arts from these otherworldly beings known as Tengu. The graphic novel I just read from is an adaptation of a text by the same name, written by the samurai-class literati Chozanshi Isai in the 17th or 18th century. It's a treatise on martial arts philosophy in the form of a discussion among a group of tengu. And in the 18th century, woodblock artist Toriyama Sekien included tengu in one of his famous yokai encyclopedias. Throughout this period, tengu were depicted as less frightening or malicious, and in the 18th century text Kaidan Toshiotoko, a tengu takes the form of a yamabushi in order to serve the abbot of a Zen monastery. When the abbot guesses the tengu's true identity, the disguise disappears. The tengu asks his master for a single piece of wisdom, then departs, but continues to provide miraculous aid to the monastery. It is in the 18th and 19th centuries that tengu start to be seen as ferocious protectors of nature, specifically forests and mountains. 
In one collection of stories from 1764, they set a sudden and ferocious hailstorm on a man gathering leaves in their valley. In the 19th and even the early 20th centuries, people whose lives and livelihoods depended on such places would leave offerings for local tengu, things like rice cakes or fish. In Ishikawa, it was said that tengu hate mackerel, and so mackerel were used as a ward against them. In the 19th century, the red-faced, long-nosed Hanadaka Tengu were a common motif on playing cards, perhaps because of their reputation as tricksters or due to their powerful magic, and they came to be associated more generally with gambling and games of chance. Many popular Tengu stories in the oral tradition portray the battles of wits between humans and Tengu, with Tengu just as gullible or silly as their human counterparts. One example is the Tengu's magic cloak, a boy looks through an ordinary piece of bamboo and pretends he can see distant places and incredible sights. A tengu, overwhelmed by curiosity and desirous of the magical item, offers to trade his magic straw cloak, a cloak of invisibility, for the piece of bamboo. Once he has tricked the tengu, the boy uses the cloak to get away and wreak all kinds of mischief on his neighbors. Although in some versions of the story, the tengu chucks the boy into an icy river and gets the cloak back. There are very few named Tengu in the stories. They tend to be generic Tengu, or groups thereof. But there are a few famous individuals. The philosopher Hayashi Razan, tutor and advisor to the first four shoguns of the Tokugawa Bakufu, listed the most famous Daitengu as Sojobo of Kurama, Tarobo of Atago, and Jirobo of Hira. And there are other published lists with even more names. I didn't come across much about Jirobo, but Tarobo of Mount Atago was supposed to have been, quote, converted to the good by the Buddhist priest and mystic En no Gyoja, legendary founder of Shugendo. Sojobo, the Tengu of Mount Kurama, the one who taught Yoshitsune, is particularly interesting. He is also considered, in some texts, the king or god of Tengu, possessing the strength of a thousand normal Tengu. The name Sojobo originates from an Edo period text called Tengu Megiko, and is believed to come from Sojogatani, the valley at Mount Kurama near Kibune Shrine, which is associated with the Shugensha. Sojogatani means bishop's valley or bishop's vale, and it is named for a famous ascetic who lived there, Sojo Ichien. Some stories even refer to named Tengu in China and India. Tengu, like the Shugensha and Yamabushi they are associated with, are seen as fierce, wild, and independent. They may obey the rules of their own leader, but they don't care about the rules that govern the rest of us. Some sources describe them as representing the potential and pitfalls of freedom for people living in a highly regimented and regulated society. They are the myth of a free, wild, uncontrolled spirit given form. And for that reason, they also threaten what little peace, stability, and security Japanese peasants had. They occupy the fuzzy border between our world and the spirit world, civilization and wilderness, human and animal. Now about Monsha. <laughs> I think he is a Tengu. They make a point of showing him gambling, of showing him red-faced from drinking. He does have a larger nose than many of the other characters. He has immense pride in himself. He's very conceited. 
and desirous of vengeance. He will listen to the orders of his superior officer, but doesn't care much for regulations in general. And there's a, an insularity to the group that he actually respects and is willing to follow the rules of, right? Like, this little group of comrades that he lived and fought with previously is his flock of Tengu, and he really doesn't care about anyone else. And one of the first things he does is this training match with Cole, and his role while he does harass Cole is to push the young man to become a better fighter. That was one of the other things about it, that he does kind of have this role as mentor. It's mostly late in the story, and it's more with Keith, and he's certainly not kind about it. But he does help train Keith up and prepare him for what they are about to go through. While also sort of tempting both of them. He's the one who's always pushing them to break the rules, to take advantage of their freedom. And from the first moment he steps off the plane and joins the rest of them, he behaves with great personal freedom and is a constant threat to the peace and order of their ship, their base, wherever they are. And he's, again, like the Tengu, he's not necessarily smarter or wiser than a person, just more powerful. He's also given to practical jokes, including some particularly dangerous ones. You could easily imagine him dropping Ko in an icy river or swapping a valuable item for a worthless piece of bamboo. So you heard it here, folks. Moncha equals Tengu. Proven. Definitive. Next time, episode 9.8 will be a surprise. Tom needs the weekend to decide what he wants to cover. All while we experience the pain of transcribing and translating a 20-minute long song. Until then, stay Genki, folks. Mobile Suit Breakdown is written, recorded, and produced by us, Tom and Nina, in scenic New York City, within the ancestral and unceded land of the Lenape people, and made possible by listeners like you. The opening track is Wasp by Misha Dioxin. The closing music is Long Way Home by Spinning Ratio. You can find links to the sources for our research, the music used in the episode, additional information about the Lenape people, and more in the show notes and on our website, GundamPodcast.com. You can get in touch with us on Twitter or Instagram at GundamPodcast, or by email to hosts at GundamPodcast.com. And thank you for listening. Yeah, I thought it was so interesting how they basically become this way to talk about like either concerns about Buddhism as a whole or about these like specific unorthodox sects and their influence in society. And when you think about it from the perspective of like a peasant in an isolated village, some guy in a strange outfit comes wandering in out of the mountains. Like maybe that's a wandering monk. Maybe. He certainly is acting weird. Not like any of the people around here act. A powerful spirit with knowledge none of the rest of you possess? Well, and if he's wandering around in the mountains, he can probably take care of himself. He is probably a powerful enough warrior to give you pause. Once the association between Tengu and these 
That is a low-flying plane. Yeah. Gotta wait for the siren to stop, though. Yeah. I'll talk over lots of things, but not the sirens. The Tengu of New York make a siren kind of noise in the wilderness. I did that same thing. I put my hand against my face and was like, seven handspans, how far out is that? It's basically as far as I can reach. Yep, it's like an arm long nose. I heard whistling just now. Did you hear that? I thought I heard like laughter with no discernible source. 